Hey, good morning, good evening, happy afternoon, wherever we all are. I don't know where I am half the time. But this is going to cover September 13th, Digital Bytes. I got Johnny Fry and I over here to talk about it. I'm excited about, well, I'm excited about all of them, but you'll, you'll know which one I get excited about when we get to it. Johnny, welcome over here. Am, am I loud? Am I clear? You're loud and clear coming in fine. Well, good to be back on the airwaves on the Digital Bike Show here on Cyber.fm. Um, beaming to over 170 countries, I think, James. So your empire and your reach is expanding day by day, which is great news. Um, well, I wonder what listeners. they think of us over in the Congo. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they cut, we're drowned out by the paraquets and the sort of um, the, the, the jaguars roaring in the read, jungle. I read that there's a dinosaur in the Congo on the internet. Has to I be true, it. right? Well, it has to be true. Is, it, uh, is that the same article that talked about Loch Ness, Loch Ness Monster? No, they, they don't know what the Loch Ness Monster is, but they're saying they're saying there's a dinosaur in the swamps of the Congo. <laughs> I, I do. I want to go. I want to go to a city. That I've never been, that wouldn't even make sense to me, right? And I want locals to be like, oh, what are you talking about? Of course, we have 6G internet and dinosaurs over in the corner. <laughs> well, you said we don't know. I think we got 2G in London. It's just, uh, and sometimes we don't have any GG, but, uh, but there you go. But welcome. Well, yeah, welcome. To, uh, thanks for listening to the Digital Bike Show here. James Tiley in. Northern Florida had a bit of wind recently. Southern Georgia, all okay now, there, James. I am. I'm still here with a roof. Excellent. All right, and I'm. Uh, I'm on the on the airwaves here in sunny Surrey, south of London. Beautiful sunny afternoon. Um, it's the fifteenth of September, and uh, every week James and I basically grab sort of twenty minutes or so talking about who, how, where, and why blockchain technology and digital assets are being used. And digital assets cover a multitude of sins from the hairy, crazy sort of cryptocurrency um, through more looking at real world assets. So looking at how tokenization, digitization of uh, shares, bonds, real estate, commodities. Um, and this week, I think the one you're interested in most in is, is looking at carbon credits. But before we get into that, um, this is really designed not to be giving investment advice or recommendations, but a um, little bit of education, a little bit of thought provoking. Um, seeing how in different countries and different industries the technology and digital assets are being used by individuals and by institutions. So this week we look at crypto gaming guilds, how they're helping people to basically earn while they play. A lot of you may be familiar with Axie Infinity, um, which uh, clocked up millions of users of people basically playing computer games and being paid. Um, carbon credits in the role of blockchain, which we'll come back to. And uh, one that's uh, a, a topic which we've looked at before and we've come back to revisit it just from sort of popular demand. What happens, um, not if, I got the title wrong, it's what happens when the US dollar is replaced as the world reserve currency. Stop and it. Typically, stop it. Stop oh, it. Oh, horrible. Uncle Sam, you're on your way out. We know that. What happens if the US is replaced? Make sure we cover that one. I'm scared. Well, there you go. But if you'd like a hard copy, um, contact James Tiley, um, T-Y-L-E-E, or myself, Johnny Fry, J-O-N-N-Y-F-R-Y. We're both on LinkedIn, or you can look at cyber.fm or teamblockchain.net. And every Wednesday, we send out a 
just a little review about five, six thousand words looking at the technology of blockchain and digital assets. Um, you're very welcome to have a copy. Just uh, go and sign up um, where they say subscribe. So, James, come on. What, what's all this about carbon credits and the role of blockchain? I understand Larry Fink has done an about turn, having been a huge advocate of ESG, um, and he's not quite so cheery about it now. I was I was caught off guard when uh well it came out on Forbes and and uh I read it on Axios. He's no longer even using the term ESG because it's been weaponized and he's ashamed to be a part of the debate issue. I mean, those are strong words from Larry Fink, right? Um BlackRock has a bullish outlook on responsible environmental social governance investing. And he's being what he, this is what they're saying, you know, being blasted by conservatives as woke capitalism, which is drawing boycotts from here in Florida and of course Texas, right? Where everything's bigger. We got uh, we got stuff, you know, Ron DeSantis is in the news lately for running for president and you know, he's going to fight Trump and and all that, but but he's not wrong, not even with a political aspect, even though that's his issue. We're using it as a tool to shame people. And I think his intention with ESG was to praise people, right? He, was, he wanted it, take what you will for, for Fink, he wanted it to be a tool to measure progress of companies and what they do and how they run. And we decided to weaponize it. And I just think the important part here is that we have broken it so badly that he's done. He's not even uttering the words anymore. And I I think it's humbling. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right word, but he's renounced the term that he invented pretty much. Wow. Okay, so so the reason this is obviously relevant is that um, well, Bloomberg reckon that the voluntary carbon credit market could reach a trillion dollars by twenty thirty seven, as you know, more and more companies basically. So if you're an airline, for example, you can't get away from it. You're burning carbon literally because you're putting jets up in the air, and when you buy a jet, you you know essentially you know a whole load of carbon's being created to create the jet. And so airline companies or, I don't know, manufacturers in general um, typically are creating lots and lots of carbon credits. So to offset that, they're being increasingly forced, encouraged or mandated to go and buy carbon credits. Um, And these carbon credits could be created literally out of thin air if you set aside land, for example, or if you do carbon sequestration, so there's various different ways that um, you can improve the the environment by essentially removing um, carbon from the environment. So planting trees, for example, is a good example. So you might say, okay, what what I'm going to do? I've got a whole lot of land. I'm going to plant a lot of trees, and those trees effectively are going to be sucking up carbon. So I get a certificate, or I'm generating renewable energy from the sun or from tides or wind, and I'm creating a carbon credit which has some sort of value. And then someone else, like an airline or a manufacturer, comes along and buys those carbon credits. That's that's the essentially um, what we're talking about um, in, in this article. 
But the trouble is, is that how do you know I've actually planted those trees? How do you know actually have generated um, the electricity from renewable sources and therefore my carbon credits are actually valid? And we've seen lots of um, problems over the last few years where people think they're actually buying carbon credits. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, that they're, they're not doing it and, and, and they're fraudulent. So um, the use of blockchain technology as we've spoken many times before, is shining a light of transparency. So you can verify the provenance of the energy that's created, and then you can verify that the carbon credits are actually sort of worth something as such, James. All right, so let me wrap my head around this real quick. I just, I don't know if you did, but the Apple event that was just the other day, yeah. right? They, I just appeared in my mind, and maybe because I knew about the article, but they touted you know apple's going to be zero carbon by 2030 and they're touting that the the watch today the new series nine is 100 dollars 800 dollars but it's also zero carbon it's their first full zero carbon scored product now with that said they are no longer shipping items uh via flight you were talking about the jets and they're only shipping via waterway. And they say that that reduces 22,000 tons of CO2 or whatever it might be. Uh, I'm just making numbers up, but the, you know, it was a dramatic number and it was very, Ooh, and ah. And, and uh, I said to myself, well, how do I know? Right. It's, I'm just taking Apple's word on it. they, they, this is what they've done. This is what they're doing. They made a fancy commercial about it. But how would one verify Apple, Apple's numbers? How would they verify that that watch really is zero carbon? So, well, uh, are these blockchain? Let, let's go here. Are these blockchain powered platforms going to represent Apple, or does Apple have to get into it? on their own voluntarily? Well, um, there'll be some people, whatever Apple say, they'll just believe. But there'll be a lot of people, and particularly the press, will say, prove it. You know, you're coming out with a claim saying you're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. Um, Google is another good example. How can a a manufacturer like Apple or how can a a basic cloud computing data company like Google, which is, you know, burning so much electricity every second around the world and most of that electricity is not being created from renewable energy how can you prove that you are net neutral um well they can do certain things like have low power electricity they can maybe put a few solar powers on their on their offices but essentially they have to go and buy carbon credits to offset the fact that their data activities are creating carbon so therefore, to do that, they've really got to have some sort of ledger, some sort of database to say, yes, we produce X million tons of carbon in our data activities, whether that's manufacturing or shipping or keeping our data centers fired up and air conditioned. So that's the, the negative side that they're producing lots of carbon, which allegedly is not very good for the environment. So then they have to go and buy these carbon credits. So people that are actually doing sort of carbon sequestration. So you know, there's a big project here in the UK whereby they're trying to capture carbon and then put it back into the North Sea. So they've drilled oil out and gas out, and now they're trying to sort of put it back 
underground where it'll be stored for you know hopefully forever um the more simple versions as we've already said could be just planting a whole load of trees um and reforestizing you know the countryside and say well okay we know how much carbon these trees typically suck up and um and hold on to so what we're going to do is um actually reward people and say okay we'll give you some we don't want you to grow trees and cut them down we want you to grow them and keep them forever and as a compensation we're going to give you carbon credits so every year you'll get so many credits for every tree you've done so you've got on the on the negative side obviously the amount of carbon they're creating when they're manufacturing or, or doing engine searches in the case of google and on the positive side they've got these carbon certifications and carbon credits whereby they're trying to offset the impact of, of their data activities and all of that if it's on a blockchain you'll be able to then see yourself rather than taking the word of of apple or google or amazon or any one of these other big companies all coming out with exactly the same things. We want to go carbon neutral. So you can see, um, and, and, you know, a good example is, you know, look at, look at the amount of money being piled into solar energy, you know, and, you know, China has committed, they're going to have 33% of the electricity by 2025. That's not long away. We'll reduce by, um, you know, renewable energy by, by, by solar in this country, in the UK, over 40% of our energy is now generated using renewable energy, um, mainly wind and solar. They're, they're, they're the sort of the, the big examples. And we've got projects. Um, there's a massive project that they're talking about in northern Australia, whereby effectively they're then going to pipe the electricity, and that'll account for 15% of all of Singapore's electricity just by having a big solar farm in, in Australia. Or there's a huge project in the Sahara in northern Africa and then they're going to run a under the sea cable to come into the West country of England. And that could give, um, I think as much as 8% of all of UK's electricity because the Moroccan sunshine, um, normally it's a curse because it's really hot and you can't grow anything there, but renewable energy. But how do you track that? And it's being tracked using sort of blockchain technology as a, as a platform. So it's going to behoove them to go with the on-chain format. That way we were transparent and uh and uh responsible so so hopefully they will do that using the u.s dollar as an index for the world uh to get involved in that ecosystem you think they'll use the the u.s dollar is that is that where we'll have to go tokenized um well i think it's only a matter of time before we see um you know more and more let me say credible tokenized us dollars and the reason i use the word credible is that a couple of weeks ago if you remember we had um, the ideal characteristics of a stable coin um i a digital or digitized form of payment um and it has old-fashioned things like a stable coin ought to be pay um the holders a bit of interest rather than the um sponsors i circle and um tether keeping the money you know tether walked away with over a billion in Q2 and 1.4 billion in Q1 because they'd made a few bets on gold and Bitcoin and commercial loans and they kept the interest on the money that was held you know, on deposit. So we're arguing very strongly that really not only do these stable coins need to have an audit or real-time access so you can see exactly where your money is. After all, it's all written on a blockchain. Why can't you have real-time access? But you, if you had that, then surely we can find an auditor that stand behind it and say, 
Yep, there's 100 billion of um, US dollars in the bank to back the 100 billion dollars worth of tokenized deposits. So that's where I think the direction of travel is going. And that's what we're going to do. And that then enabled you to make micropayments. So literally, as people are using up electricity, they're having to pay for it. Or as it's getting generated, the generators, the solar farms, the wind farms, the however it's being created, could be being credited in, in real time. So none of this 90 days notice that, oh, I'll wait until you know my electricity bill gets paid. It's actually being generated much, much faster, which reduces the costs, reduces the risk. And, and that's why it makes the whole thing a lot more efficient. So here's a hot take. What happens if the U.S. dollar is replaced as the world reserve currency? Does Tether freak out? There's going to be an economic consequence. Well, there sure is going to be economic consequence. And I think the the, the, the biggest event will be the fact that it'll just create a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Um, now, the reason, the reason that potentially the US dollar is going to be replaced is it's just the sheer weight of debt. You know, the, the US economy is throwing off so much debt. And eventually, um, you know, the Chinese being big buyers of the debt, uh, Middle East being big buyers of the debt. But people are increasingly saying, we've got so much of the US debt. You know, are we absolutely certain that Uncle Sam will eventually be able to afford to repay it? And and the way the national and personal debt figures are going in the States, you have to put a big question mark over it. And if we look back in time, we've had this discussion before, James, you know, before the US dollar, it was pound sterling. Before pound sterling, it was the French franc. Before the French franc, it was the um, Dutch gilderum. Before that, it was Spanish Besatum. Before that, it was the Portuguese real. And actually, you can go back to 1240, when effectively it was like the Italian lira that was the world reserve currency. That was what people said was really rock solid and safe. Um, and you know, be given the debt situation in America, increasingly people are talking about not using the US dollar to hold necessarily all of their reserve currencies. And it's still without a doubt the dominant currency. But if you know you can pay for someone for their renewable energy or you can pay for someone for shipping goods around in a different format. So historically you might have used gold, but we saw the um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, the BRICS conference end of July. Um, well, if they start saying, well, why do we need to buy the US dollar? Why can't we settle and buy things between ourselves using our own currency or a basket of our own currencies? And I think very much the Fed or the US government are concerned these, these digital assets. You know, what, what happens if, heaven forbid, something like um, Libra had been successful, the digital currency from Facebook. And a lot of people scoff at Facebook. But you've got to remember, there's still 2.8 billion people a month logging onto their Facebook accounts and, and you know, doing stuff. You know, Facebook market is pretty active. So if you didn't need to use the US dollar, but you use some sort of other currency that's created, that slowly, slowly undermines the US dollar. And therefore, potentially, the US dollar starts falling in price. And given the current inflationary outlook, you know, we have a situation whereby inflation is still high. Interest rates went up to the highest ever yesterday in, in Europe. Um, you could well see interest rates go up by another couple of percent in Europe and in, in the US, without a doubt. Well, that would put tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure um, on the US and the European economy. And maybe at that stage, people start saying, I don't care what interest you pay. I'm not sure you're going to be able to afford to repay your debt. In which case, you know, I'm going to go and hold something different. And that's the whole thing behind BRICS, right? The Brazil, Russian. I heard India is changing their name. India is no longer going to be known as India. 
So that might break their naming convention. But, oh. hey, did you hear about that? It's pretty interesting. No. Yeah, they, so, uh, look, here goes no my ADD. My ADD is kicking in. <laughs> India is going to change its name to uh, Bharat, B-H-A-R-A-T. Okay. This is as of September 6th at the G20 summit. Right, but, right. so that'll that'll break brick. It'll become BRBCS. Here's what scares me. Right now, it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Bricks. We've already got six new countries coming in on January 1st. And, you know, you say what you will. Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. That's big. That's pretty big. Mm -hmm. And then you have 14 more that have already applied. This is not a small amount of countries in terms of wanting to break away from the U.S. dollar, where we're talking about U.S. dollar. Well, James, you're right, because whilst the BRICS account for approximately 36% of the world economic activity, GDP. The current BRICS? The current BRICS. Okay, Uh that's as of August, that's as of last week. Um, uh, according to African news, the BRICS countries account for 47% of the world population. And typically, the BRICS members have fast-growing young populations as opposed to, if you like, the the more traditional older, you know, America, Italy, Canada, UK, Germany, you know, the, France, those sorts of countries, they've got declining populations. So, you're just by natural dint of the population um, profile, we're going to see BRICS countries actually having a great, the, it, very, very soon, there's going to be more than 50% of the world population that are in those BRICS countries. And you have to say, well, you know, if I'm in, you know, in a BRICS country, why am I using a non-BRICS currency to do day-to-day transactions? Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> Will I be allowed to? Well, that's the point. That is the point. So, you know, you, you're, you're, you've already seen, you know, Russia selling loads of oil at a discount price to India. Um, and, you know, and you're seeing uh, the Chinese, you know, the Chinese are essentially being the sort of the, the central banker swapping currencies for other BRICS members and lending them cash. Um, but China's got its own challenges. You know, China's property market looks in a bit of a pickle at the moment. Um, but nevertheless, the Chinese have been lending money to the the Russians, the last 14 months went from a couple of billion to just under 10 billion they've, they've lent the Russians. So the bricks between them are, you know, are, are very becoming increasingly self-sufficient. And therefore, what impact does that have on the US dollar? Now, on this note, as we talked about in Digital Bytes this week, we've, we've got MasterCard and they've announced something called the multi-token network. And the basic idea is that um, what happens if people want to have alternative forms um, to actually pay for things and do things um, between each other? You know, do we always have to use fiat? You know, why can't we go back and say, look, James, you know, I want, um, you know, I want to use, I know, some of my gold um, and I want to buy some of your shares or, you know, I want to trade, you know, a couple of weeks in your your house for, you know, maybe you want to have a couple of weeks in my house. Nothing to do with money, but we're actually trading value assets, real estate, 
funds, equities, things like that. And so they've set up multi-token network. Um, and I understand at Cybos next week in, in Toronto, they'll be announcing a lot more news around the multi-token network. And essentially, it's the digitization, the tokenization of swapping value. And that doesn't mean to say cash is going away anytime soon. But when you see someone like MasterCard saying, well, with our 40-odd million shops all over the world, we, we need to be cognizant and mindful that actually there could be a different way of paying for things and, and, and swapping value. And that different way, we believe, could well be the digitization, tokenization of payments. That's going to be fun negotiating items. <laughs> yeah, what's your basket of apples worth? My bushel of wheat. I'll give you three pieces of silver. <laughs> but isn't it bizarre? You know, we're going back. And if you remember a couple of weeks, we looked at this and we looked at the history of money, which went back to um, something like 600 BC. So that's getting on for 3000 years ago. That was the first time. And it was the Lydian kings in what now you'd be sort of, um, you know, Arabia. Um, they, they were the first people to come out with bits of metal as a way of, you know, as a form of money. So, you know, using money goes back a long, long time and it isn't going to go anywhere soon. But the US dollar, as people start using other currencies and not actually using the US dollar, there'd be less demand. Therefore, the dollar could well fall in in value and being undermined by that sheer volume of debt that unfortunately the US dollar has at the moment. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think uh, maybe it's a question that we'll pose for when we do the embedded finance uh, event with CMS that's coming up, right? Yep, we got CMS tax and law specialists. Um, they're coming up and talking about embedded finance and and how products are taking center stage. And um, the CMS team now they have a team. I think it's one of the only dedicated teams that I'm aware of um, as, as lawyers in in London here, and they, they see tremendous growth of embedded finance. So this is where non financial um, businesses are able to start using financial products. And it's all being spurred with um, new technologies. They're offering buy now, pay later, revenue-based lending. And they reckon by 2026, this could be worth over $7 trillion. So something which is almost coming from nowhere could be a very substantial part. So um, more on that from CMS on Embedded Finance coming up just after the break, James. All right, that sounds good to me. Team Blockchain.net. Right in front of you, the minute it loads up, we don't care how you listen to this show. I'd love for you to listen on Cyber.fm, but let's be realistic. Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, iHeart, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pandora, and you could always say, Alexa, open up Digital Bytes Podcast. We put that right there in the very front, and right next to it, if you have no idea what we're talking about every week, stick your email address in there and actually get the newsletter. Hey everybody, James Tiley, Johnny Fry, we're back. Part two, you know, we we're going to talk to uh, the writers of this article that I'm, this is, this is the one I like, I'm familiar with um, what we're going to talk about in embedded finance. So Johnny brought along Fiona and Laura, who contributed to this uh, Digital Bytes newsletter. Right, Johnny, bring them on. Certainly will. Thanks, James. Um, it's embedded finance, so I hope you're not in your bed while we talk about this, but would, nothing would surprise you. But Fiona and Laura, welcome to uh, welcome to the show and interested because embedded finance is something which we kind of know a little bit about. But I have to be honest, I, I can't believe that it's potentially going to be as big as 
you say it's going to be a six trillion dollar market within a couple of years. But before we get stuck into that, um, would you mind, um, you know, perhaps just give a bit of an overview to what the two of you do at CMS? Obviously, CMS is a, is a very big lawyer. Um, but uh, Fiona, you're based up in sunny Scotland. And Laura, I think you're down in um, down in Blightyland, down in London. Is that right? That's right, Johnny. Um, so hi, everyone. My name's Fiona Henderson. I'm a partner in the banking team at CMS, and I'm I'm based up in Aberdeen in in Scotland. Um, so my my specialty is tech finance and fintech, and particularly embedded finance, um, which has really grown in the in the last couple of years, and it's it's grown so much that we've built a specialist embedded finance industry team, and Laura and I are part of that team leading the charge for all things embedded finance. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Laura, you've not been at CMS for quite so long as Fiona, because Fiona's, um, you've been there 10 years, haven't you, Fiona? You said it just before we came on the road. That's right. That's right. Very loyal. Very loyal. And Laura, how long have you been there? Um, I've been at CMS for um, coming up to two years now. So definitely not waving the flag for as long as Fiona. (laughs) But you'll do okay. 10. You'll do 10. <laughs> of course. I have to beat her. <laughs> <laughs> Look, ladies, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued because I understand CMS has, is the only law firm in London um, that has a, a dedicated team to embedded finance. Well, presumably that's because the, you see some really interesting opportunities and, you know, clients are looking more and more at this, as, especially non-financial. Perhaps you could start off explaining what embedded finance is and, and why, as your article says, it's beginning to take centre stage? Yes, of course. So I think that's a great question to start with. What really is this buzzword, embedded finance? Um, so to people that aren't in the industry, I usually use buy now, pay later as an example. So if mm-hmm. you're a shop product like me, you go online to buy a dress, you add that to your basket, and at the online checkout, you select the buy now, pay later option, and then you continue with the checkout process. You're then paying for the um, the dress over a course of a set number of repayment periods. But to put that into a more technical description, so a dictionary style definition, you could say that embedded finance is the availability of financial products integrated into a company's infrastructure provided by non-financial institutions and capitalized by traditional banks. And it's provided at the point of customer need. So there's a few well, key I think things. I, I think I prefer your definition. Talking about buying, buying dresses and paying a bit later. That, that sounded very legal and very wordy, the other definition. <laughs> it's always good to have two options. <laughs> oh, God, flipping lawyers. Here we go. Here we go. Well, OK, <laughs> we all know buy now, pay later. But but what other, you know, and Klarna have been massively successful, obviously, with this. But what are the other examples that we're, you're beginning to see embedded finance in? Um, so, I mean, where, where to start? There's, there's, there's so many, and 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 part of, um, part of their appeal and part of their feature is that you you might not even notice them. Um, lots of people refer instead of embedded finance to invisible finance or frictionless finance, and it's all it's all words used to describe the same the same type of of, of concept. But to give a, a couple of examples, um, so B2B buy now pay later is uh, a real area of growth if you think about the, the cash flow pressures on businesses. And 
An example of a company providing that would be Hakodo in the UK and Europe. And I'd say it's probably um, been a tougher nut to crack compared to um, B2C buy now, pay later, thinking about you know the likes of Klarna, etc. Um, if you're you know underwriting um, as between consumers and corporates and B2B, B2C buy now, pay later. So you're buying a dress online. You already had your customer journey online already in terms of your, your e-commerce industry. So I, I think B2B is probably going to be a big area of growth in terms of buy now, pay later offerings. I'd say another example would be revenue-based finance. Um, so an example would be Libris who've got um, a, a broad geographical offering and um, revenue-based lending products are targeted at so SMEs, growing SMEs, um, early stage businesses. Customers get an initial cash amount advanced and then the repayment is on the basis of a percentage of their generated revenue. So the idea is that the customer pays when they get paid to allow a certain amount of flexibility in terms of their cash position okay so so not dissimilar to factoring in terms of an alternative source of finance but based on revenue rather than if you like an invoice that has already been generated uh, that's right and i'd say a lot of these products they're not the, the the kind of core of the product might might not itself be be novel but it's the application of technology in the underwriting process or it's the the quick turnaround times due to the digitization of um, onboarding and providing the product or just where the product is provided in the customer journey you're you're no longer going to the bank necessarily when you need when you need a loan you know the taking on loans or credit or finance when you need it is is popping up in you know customer journeys that that wouldn't necessarily be associated with finance in the traditional sense. Okay, and it's Going interesting, in, in your article, you know, you you talk about most of the companies you're mentioning, um, you've already mentioned, um, I think, great name, have, have, are from, I know I'm going to pronounce it wrong, so I apologize, Hokodo? Hokodo. Hokodo. Um, well, you know, not, not, a, not a household name, Liberus, Uncapped, Bloom. These are not banks, are they? These are, these are, but they're moving into what traditionally would have been the banking sector, i.e. helping to oil the wheels of commerce and provide sort of finance and what have you. So you've got new businesses basically helping companies to um, in that perennial issue with SMEs of, of cash flow. Yes, absolutely. And you could even have, you know, fintechs funding fintechs, uh, really, um, which which is interesting. Um, you know, the, the other side of it is the large tech companies in terms of, you know Apple and Amazon and what they're what they're offering um, offering their existing customer base um, already if, uh, considering their wide distribution channel and loyal customers already um, signed up I think it, it'll be interesting to see um, how that how that expands and and if the the big players you know become become bigger Okay, so Apple as an example, um, would you would you put the recent success or the recent their, their cash deposit offering where they've managed to raise over ten billion in four or five months? Um, is that a type of embedded finance product that you're, you're referring to there? 
So their their, their Apple Pay later um, product is 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 definitely an example of of a of an embedded finance product in terms of its in terms of its integration. So um, and they've obviously got Apple Pay as well. So an example of them looking to provide you know numerous integrated products to 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 their to their customers, which I think we'll see more of from from the bigger players. And right. Apple are interesting as well because they, with their Apple Pay Later product, I think they're looking at the um, the data from their Apple customers in terms of um, the credit and underwriting checks that they're doing. Right, right, okay. So they they can perhaps they know they know the credit history of their customers presumably. So 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 surely a good one would must be the telecom companies. You know they you know they they know who pays their phone bills or mobile phones or cell phones as James would call them on time. So that could be another one that. We could see the mobile phone companies getting involved in Sarah, presumably. I think the you know the importance of and the value of data is is definitely you know it's driving a number of aspects. But you know the, the more the more data there is, and the the more you can apply you know an algorithm, um, or you can you know you can run it through a bit of tech, then the potential is that you can be offering solutions that might not have been made available before in terms of you know sophisticated um you know alternative options for for finance to those that that might have been um unable to get them via traditional means or just integrating them into you know a consumer journey such as e-commerce as by now pay later has has very successfully done okay and and obviously you know here on the show we we're, we're trying to highlight examples for listeners all over the world of how um, blockchain technology and or digital assets are being used. And, and, and you, you mentioned earlier on, it's the combination of some of the different technologies. It might be blockchain, it might be AI, might be big data, might be machine learning. But those different technologies are beginning to be used in this embedded finance sector, from what you said. Exactly. And, and joining those technologies as well, um, with the embedded finance firms and their capabilities um, just demonstrates that there's the potential for further growth. So um, there's discussions about how blockchain can be used further in um, in um, providing the, the, the underlying kind of credit checks and, and things for customers. So it definitely, definitely is going to assist with providing products quickly. Okay. And, and is there any, I know you're both based here in the UK, but is there any um, other jurisdictions where you're seeing interest from customers on, on a global basis with embedded finance like this? Yes, absolutely. So it's not embedded finance isn't just um, restricted to the UK. Uh, embedded finance is getting everywhere, to be honest. Um, it, it, it depends on the regulatory landscape. Um, speaking from a lawyer's perspective, of course, oh, no. uh, <laughs> in terms of um, what products can be offered. Um, just because the regulatory um, requirements across across countries differ, um, but we are seeing um, embedded finance firms expand um, into multiple jurisdictions. So Hakodo, like Fiona mentioned, isn't just located in the UK. They they provide um, their offerings um, to all different places in Europe, um, and there's also untapped markets. So, for example. Um, Canada recently changed its laws so that merchants in most provinces can charge consumers um, fees for credit card payments instead of the merchants being charged those fees themselves. So there's a possibility that things like that might offer an opportunity for embedded finance firms to expand into those um, areas. 
Blimey, if they can generate the sort of fees that MasterCard and Visa can, well, I think they're operating a 40% profit margin. So they, uh, there must be some opportunities there to, for someone to come and undercut and provide some even more competitive, which would be good for consumers. Exactly. Yeah. James, you've been very quiet. So I hope you haven't fallen asleep in your embedded finance today. No, but I feel old now. I'm getting old. <laughs> we are, James. <laughs> so I was going to say, I got introduced to, and, and I do more user-friendly, buy now, pay later. My son and his girlfriend are buying everything on Klarna. And uh, I think another one is called Catapult over here. But so he introduced me to this idea. And, you know, being who I am, I was immediately like, well, wait a minute. What's the interest rate? What is, you know, how does it affect your credit? And I bought one or two things with Klarna, you know, buy here, buy now, pay later. So when I was reading the article, though, I was it, it did reintroduce. This is the future of companies becoming banks, for lack of a better term, I would say. Do you guys, are you aware of how is that risk being accepted with companies are they asking you almost for legal advice on if they should like is the risk so much more because in in my limited knowledge over here in the u.s they're not checking credit scores or if they are they're doing it differently So I'd say without without um, without commenting on a specific product, um, certainly providing um, products to consumers is um, is more risky from a from a regulatory perspective because it's unrightly so more tightly regulated. And I think just generally speaking, there is a tension between how quickly things can be done, um, and you know the term frictionless finance. Um, it, it is one that you know we we've discussed before. You know how how much friction should there be in uh, a journey which which ultimately you know is providing a financial product to a consumer, um, and and the, the you know the USP of these products is is their speed, and and you know the terms as against you know, the current kind of prevailing interest rates and cost of living crisis. Um, you know these these products can be. Um, very um, appealing to consumers so it's really how those how those risks are balanced between speed and innovation and protecting consumers and it's certainly something that that all regulators and all jurisdictions are keeping keeping a close eye on and um, the the regulator in the FCA fairly frequently issues dear CEO letters with um, you know guidance or uh, views on you know particular areas where you know they, they, they may perceive that there some firms are falling short or the industry needs to do more to protect cus, uh, consumers so it's it's certainly a balance are you seeing it you think it's stable now like have they they've set in stone what they expect to see what what's going what they're going to see versus what they expected and you should just be moving forward um, there's there is there is lots of guidance um, on, on on the regulators um, website that they publish certainly in the UK and uh, we've got the new consumer duty without getting too technical that's come 
come in force this summer. Um, so, so plenty of firms will be looking at what they need to do to comply with that. And that there are there's still a possibility that 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 buy now pay later will become um, more regulated or, or subject to new regulation, which is, is still something being considered in the UK at, at the moment. So I, I think the spotlight will will still remain um, will still remain on these products uh, just to balance that risk of you know speed innovation and protecting protecting customers. Brilliant. Well, look, Fiona, Laura, thank you very much for coming on. Hopefully, um, people a little bit more know a fay with embedded finance. Um, is LinkedIn the best way to get hold of you if people would like to know a little bit more information about some of the things you're doing, how you might be able to help them? Yes, yes please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay, well, obviously, it's Fiona Henderson, um, as in, well, well, Henderson, I suppose. I was trying to think what. What's the most famous Henderson that's out there, Fiona? There must be a famous Henderson. Oh, gosh. Apart from I'm your mum. To, I'm trying to think. <laughs> You'll have to come back to me on that one. <laughs> and we've got Laura Collins, not not um, not the other very famous Collins. She was an actress, wasn't she? Elizabeth Collins? No. You know, who was Laura no. Co- Who was, you know, the act, the film star, Collins? I, I only got Phil Collins and Elizabeth Phil Collins. Collins. <laughs> Phil Collins. <laughs> you're, not, you're not Phil's daughter, are you, Laura? Not as far as I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, thank you ladies very much. Thank you, James. And um, really interesting. It'd be great to perhaps get you back early in the new year because I know you're working with a number of different companies. And as ever, super discreet lawyers, you can't possibly say until it's in the public domain, but it'd be really interesting. Perhaps we'll catch up next year. Um, a $7 trillion market. It's, it's, a, it's a big market, which not many people are that aware of, but I think... Um, you know, you are going to become more and more aware of it and start using the products, particularly for the, on the B2B side. I think that's particular interest because, you know, as someone that's run and been involved in smaller businesses for quite a few years, I know cash flow is always a problem. So any way to help small to medium sized businesses um, is certainly going to be very welcome, um, you know, because at the end of the day, it's the SMEs that drive most economies, employ most people and generate most taxes. But, uh, but thank you very much. And um, we will hopefully speak to you soon. Thanks again for having us. Good to speak.